gentle ladies, lad men, ladies and gentlemen, dreamers and dreams alike, and welcome to the Devolver Digital Forecast here at forecast.devolverdigital.com. Hi, I'm your co-host JM. And I am Jared. Hey Jared, how's it going? Oh, it's going all right. Going all right. Nice. Uh, how you nice, doing? Nice. I too am doing all right. I mean, the weather's been lovely here relative to there. Uh, for those who don't know about what's going on in austin texas it has been frozen rain power outages uh below freezing temperatures and just trees just falling all over the place the frozen rain caking onto the tree branches and causing them to split and shatter and just make a mess have i have i covered most of it yeah i mean that's that's pretty much it i um I, I kept power, which was lucky, but, you know, plenty of people I know weren't too lucky. But, yeah, my, my backyard and my front yard are uh, <laughs> look like a hurricane rolled through there, man. <laughs> oh, man. Are, you, do you, are your trees okay? Do they seem um, I mean, like they'll, they'll be okay in the long run? I, yeah, they'll be, they'll, they'll be okay in the long run, but they definitely took, like, quite a beating and quite a... Uh, um, I have, like, one quite large tree in my backyard. And that had a lot of branches, like, just completely snap off. So now it looks all weird, so I'm going to have to <laughs> trim it up and <laughs> clean nice. it all up. But, I mean, not, it didn't damage, you know, it didn't fall on, like, a, in the house or on the cars or anything like Good. that. didn't damage anything. But, um, yeah, that sucked for a little while. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can hardly imagine. Um, I, yeah, I lived in Texas for many, many years, <laughs> most of my life, and, uh, Nope, that's not what winter was like, as no. far as I know. I've seen wind tear a tree apart. I've seen a tree just, like, twisted open and split to splinters by wind. But I haven't seen the kind of ice damage that's been going on the last few years. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's no good. No fun. I don't like it. <laughs> no? Are you gonna are you gonna are you gonna play Terra Nil and then hope that your yard gets fixed by you playing Terra Nil? <laughs> yeah, it's, instead of doing any actual like work that I need to do, I'll just play Terra Nil and imagine that that's what's going on. Yeah, I think that sounds like go. a good idea. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how that works. Or you just play the soundtrack while you do the work, and then it's like you're playing Terra Nil. I, yeah, it wouldn't be quite the same, but no, <laughs> no. Uh, nice. Well, I have one thing of Devolver news. I've, there's probably more, but what I've got is that Bleak Sword is currently available. Uh, well, Bleak Sword DX is currently available on Steam as a demo. Uh, it's very good. That's what I've been playing a lot of lately. Not the demo version. I've been playing the full version because I can. <laughs> <laughs> I also have been playing a lot of it. It is so, so good. fun. It is so good. <laughs> it's so good. And I played it on Apple. So for anyone who doesn't know, Bleak Sword came out on Apple Arcade. It was a launch title for Apple Arcade. And due to contractual obligations, it's been on Apple Arcade the whole time. And it's also had updates because Apple Arcade required updates. So uh, Bleak Sword DX is it coming over to PC and Switch. And uh, it is, it's been completely redone for controllers. And it's just such a cool game. I loved it on Apple Arcade. I I, I love it on PC. It's a, it's real good. It's real so fun, stuff. so solid, and yeah, I, I I needed to play like a bit of it for something, and then I ended up just like playing it for a few hours without realizing it because it's yeah. so so addicting. <laughs> yeah. What's wonderful about it is it's just it's a shining example of how simple, easy, and straightforward the porting process always is between any two platforms. Uh, <laughs> and, to talk, and to talk more about the very factual things that I just said, uh, we have Devolver Digital's operations director, Mark Lloyd, here with us today. As we call him Lloydy. Hello, Lloydy. Hi, guys. How's hello, it going? Hello. Yeah, it's going well. Um, porting is just the easiest part of the job, obviously. You just take the game yeah. on one platform... You literally load it on another platform, job done. Out it goes. Mm -hmm. Everybody enjoys mm -hmm. it. It's amazing. <laughs> you got to change the logos and the button pictures, right? But that's it, right? Well, yeah, well, yeah. You don't have to, but you can, and you know we do because we can. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> sure, right, right, yeah. You don't, yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, well, Lloydie, would you mind sharing with us uh, what you what you do generally at Devolver? Sure. Um, 
A little bit of lots of things, actually. I, the good thing about it is I kind of work with most people in the company at some time or other, depending on which part of the work the operations area covers. So, yeah, porting, mm. working with teams, finding teams, connecting them with the devs, but also things like um, co-development. Lots of our games, as we know, with especially with our indie partners, they're often doing the PC SKU, but they also need a little bit of help with their own kind of capabilities and you know making the game really mm. fly. So in that classic Devolver way, we can wrap our arms around them and support them with teams that can help them with their primary game, as well as the ports and things like that. But also operationally, we look at things like quality assurance. We're building a, a QA Fire team currently, which will be some really good specialists that can help the devs understand quality assurance a bit more and make their builds better so we get better um, kind of output from our partners, uh, Lionbridge and Testronic, you know, those guys that support us with big QA passes for functional compliance. So kind of the logic stuff, really. A bit less creative, a lot more logic, uh, yeah. and touching the business side. So working with Luke and Graham and, and Doug, and, you know, on how we mm-hmm. bring the games together and then working with production to get them done. So that's kind of a baseline. Nice. So I guess, so is operations a, a general, like a, a widely used term in the industry? Interestingly, operations is a, a widely used term in most businesses, but within our industry, it can be, it can be a little bit, um, what's the word, either tailored or a bit more general. My, my role in Devolver is general operations, but in some companies it can relate specifically okay. to technical stuff like the IT things. You could, you know, I mean, obviously Echo does many, many things, but you could say that falls under operations. You know, the teams that make the websites mm. and things like that. So it varies from company to company. And within our industry, it tends to be about the services that surround our development day to day. So, yeah, QA, support teams, contractors, getting things in a submission, like with JM and, uh, you know, those guys and the producers, making sure that everything lines up properly. It's a logic, it's a logic game. And in Devolver, that's kind of okay. tough because obviously we're very organic, we're very creative. <laughs> nobody likes logic, nobody tracks anything. Everybody hates metrics, uh-huh. and that's my job. So yeah, it's uh, fun. <laughs> nice, good. It's it's good to be hated at Devolver. It adds character. <laughs> what is that? You guys hating on me because I try and apply logic, or me hating everybody else because there is no logic? Uh, you know, choose a poison. Ooh, oh, nice. That's juicy. It could be both, I probably, guess. Probably a bit of I mean, you are widely hated, I well, think. That's, that's, yeah, that's... of course. I'm the guy that gets in your way. That's kind of it. I know that. That's my job. And then we get a better outcome. Yeah. That's kind of the deal. Nice. No, that's wonderful. That's really cool. I guess, like, see, I kind of feel like, like an idiot uh, a little bit. And, you know, you talk about Devolver being organic. And for me, like... It's been, you know, I came into this years ago, but like for me, it's been like, oh, we've got marketing and production and like, you know, finance. And then like, oh, now we've got, well, finance was a guy, but now it's like marketing, production, finance, legal. And then you talk about operations and I'm like, oh, that's a subset of production. But then you're talking about talking to production. I'm like, oh, no, it's a different thing. So it's just kind of, you know, watching the different, like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's watching Devolver get bigger and get a greater capacity to support devs in new and different ways. So that's uh, exciting, but I, I'm trying not to sound like an idiot as I ask questions for clarification. Um, I think you've nailed it, really. There's a very simple way to look at it. You know, Devolver was a small and powerful and talented group of people for many years. And the thing with that was everybody did a bit of something else. So you had your own kind yeah. of specialisms and you knew what you wanted to do and what you were good at. But you'd also touch other things. You know, Devolver was really good at having events where devs came and stuff like that. And that's very different to many publishers out in the world. So um, you guys were kind of across many things because you were a small team. When teams get larger mm-hmm. or, or they have to kind of really, you know, deliver a bit more tightly on dates or try and hit things a little bit, you know, more accurately. And that's, you know, in the organic way yeah. Devolver goes is, it gives the love to whatever it needs to for as long as it needs to. Um, when you add a little bit more process to that, the way that you expand your team is you slowly 
relieve generalists of specific things and you create mm -hmm. specialists. So in the same way that yeah. a producer um, helps a developer understand how to build the components of its game and bring them together, uh, you know, bring, bring those components together and then get the thing ready and move through beta and into GM ultimately for it to be finished, operations brings production and, and marketing together and creates tools and wraps things around. It's like the glue in amongst everything else really so today for example mm. i was doing some legal paperwork with the producers and some port teams so that's me touching legal in an operations way and and production mm. i was also talking to devs i also had a meeting with a dev team that is part of the sumo group who are specialists in unreal 5 because we'll, you know we were taking our games to unreal 5 in the next number of years so it kind mm. of see it as a bit of the glue that keeps everything moving in between where there's a need to connect things. It's That's operations, really. Um, and so I joined the company. I was asked to join the company by Luke and Graham, um, primarily as kind of doing some production work, and then I did the port work. And then over the last kind of mm -hmm. six, eight months, I've been really doing, you know, that kind of operations role, QA, codev, all that kind of stuff as well. So um, a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, really, on the getting stuff done front which is why it can be perceived that i sometimes get in the way because i'm talking about risk and anybody who thinks about risk in devolvers going i hate that word it scares me and i'm like that's fine <laughs> we just need to understand it so we can manage it and harry loves that but yeah. when i say to harry there's, a, there's two or three big risks harry he goes oh my god please don't tell me lloydy so um it's kind of like that. <laughs> You've got to have you got to have both though. Like you've got to have someone charging forward, and then you've got to have somebody you know, kind of just tapping the brake and looking out for things and just making sure that things are accommodated for. Yeah. Before they become. Yeah, that's that's actually the essence of a it. A thrill. That's the essence of it. Uh, yeah. We are, if you're very entrepreneurial out in the real world of business and everything else, entrepreneurs are great at finding opportunities and seeing that bright shiny thing in the distance. What they're also great at mm -hmm. is just running with it and leaving a trail of disaster, sometimes people, sometimes <laughs> jobs, all the way behind them while they chase the next shiny object in mm -hmm. the distance. And people like me yeah. stand behind those folks to pick up that, to fix those problems or to make it less or to keep it together. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah, yeah you, need, you need both. You need somebody who can see the opportunities and then you need a kind of a reality bat. Uh, to say, hey, if we're going to do that, looks like this. These are the problems you could encounter. Let's mitigate those. Let's think about those. We're not stopping it. We're just shaping it for, for better success. That's kind of what this role is. Nice. How did you find your way into video games? What is your, what's your, what's your journey been like? Um, what's led you here? Was it on purpose or? Uh, yeah, uh, it's a little bit unusual. Um, I kind of, I kind of came across computers very early. You know, I'm not a young man, and um, the first machine I ever touched, if you like, was a, a BBC Model B computer in the early '80s. And I remember being very much blown away by um, <clears throat> a game called uh, Killer Gorilla, and it was literally a ripoff of Donkey Kong, mm -hmm. but it was on there. And another game called Defender, you know, the arcade one with a spaceship, and you pick up. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so those are the two games. And this is, I want to say, I don't know, 83 or something. I want to say 83. And um, I just really connected with it at that time. And I'd be about, how old was I then? I'd, I'd be like 15, 16. Um, <clears throat> and then, based on not having a great home life, I thought I'd get out. So I joined the military at 17, just 17. <coughs> Excuse me, the, the Royal Air Force. And so I moved away, moved away from home, and off I went. And 13 years later, and the first Gulf War, no-fly zone of a Bosnia, various other bits and bobs. I came out of the military in 97. Um, and I was settled with my partner, Diane, in Lincoln. And there's a little um, development studio <coughs> called Taransa Studios. And the guy that run that was called Steve Marsden, and he'd worked previously on pinball dreams on the game boy and a few of those very early game boy games 
and he had a mm. he had a role um, which was kind of setting up a small QA group by this time I'd been out of the military two years it was 1999 now uh, I'd been working for a hydraulics company I was kind of a bit unhappy um, and I saw this job and I thought I'm going to apply for that so I went to the interview had a chat with Steve I was I was almost twice the age of every other candidate for a small Q, few QA roles on Game Boy Games in Lincoln, England a uh, bit of a limited yeah. audience <clears throat> And um, immediately fell out with Steve because <laughs> he was a oh, no. <laughs> he was he, he was a programmer and he was very specific about things uh, and he was a massive rugby rugby league fan and I'd played rugby in the military and I, and I kind of liked both rugby uh, being a Yorkshireman rugby league in the UK and then being in the RAF rugby union and I played played both actually um, but no he wasn't having it <clears throat> he didn't like the fact I liked rugby union. We had a little bit of an argument, and I just said, I'm all, I'm all done. Thanks, Steve. Got up and walked out. So that was that job done. Um, that was the interview? Yeah, that was the interview. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. it, it was kind of quick and cool. I didn't. I wasn't there long, <laughs> less than 15 minutes. And uh, uh-huh. about two weeks later, uh, because of engineering background, especially aeronautical engineering, I was pretty employable, um, I'd got an offer of a job. And I just thought, I'd ring up and be cheeky. So I, I rang up Transfer Studios and the, the studio manager, I'll never forget him, strange guy, Simon Crisp. He said, oh, hello. And, and I went, yes, yeah, it's, it's Mark Lloyd. I came for an interview a couple of weeks ago. It was a disaster. I walked out. I just wondered if, you, uh, if you'd considered me. <laughs> and he said, give me a minute. So he put Steve on the phone. And Steve says, oh, hello, Mark. I said, hi, Steve. I said, I was being cheeky. I just thought... Um, I'd ask if uh, you were still interested in maybe, or you know, how I'd done, even though the interview went terrible. Because we'd had a little test on the Game Boy as well. Uh, and he goes, yeah, could you start mm. Monday? And I went, of course. So um, that was, I'm going to say that was March <laughs> 1999. And I started my first day that following Monday uh, in Tarantula Studios, as it was called. It's about a 25-man studio doing Game Boy games. And... Uh, it was to set up a little QA group, and he'd basically recruited five other uh, youngish lads, around 20 years old, um, to form the QA group. And that's how we started. And that was the beginning of the journey of <laughs> building Take Two's whole QA group, building Rockstar Lincoln, 12 years at Rockstar, and on from there. So it started with that really poor interview, and Steve going, Yeah, come and join us on the Monday. So that was how I got into the industry. <laughs> I mean, that's <clears throat> great advice uh, for for getting into a, a that's <laughs> that's fantastic. So I'm just curious because you're talking about aeronautical engineering yeah. experience from the RAF and these other jobs. So I'm imagining that this small indie Game Boy studio was not paying you comparably to what these other jobs were offering. Mm, yeah, I mean that was a thing. It really was a a change for the love of video games. But bear in mind, you know, since the BBC Model B, yeah. I'd been, I'd had, you know, Spectrum, Spectrum Plus 2, you know, with a tape. I'd had Atari ST, yeah. Amiga. I was on a, I think by that time, I had like a 486 uh, PC. I'd, you know, I built PCs. In yeah. fact, I built the first six PCs from parts for the guys that started with the QA group at Tarantula. Um, but yes, on the financial front, when I left the military... The, the kind of uh, engineering hydraulics job I took was half the salary, and then I halved it again to go to work at Tarantula. But it kind of felt it kind of felt right. I, you know, I was in Lincoln. Lincolnshire's yeah. pretty remote. There's not not much there. Certainly not much games industry there. And this is back in you know this is like the late nineties. Really, yeah. the PlayStation one had taken off and was starting to really make games big. And obviously, the PC market was there. So it was still early. It was still a little bit like the Wild West and a bit unregulated and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And I thought this might be the only chance for me to do something I really love. And, you know, I'd always played video games. So the money was secondary to the opportunity. And I took the opportunity. Yeah. And Tarantula Studios, nicely for me, 
was wholly owned by Take Two Interactive and managed out of the Windsor mm. European office, which is you know, and obviously the other half of Take Two was Rockstar Games. So um, by well by ninety, so that was ninety nine. That was March ninety nine. By two thousand and one, I had about twenty guys in the team. We were we were testing more than just a transfers games. We were doing Take Two stuff. Already working on early Rockstar stuff like GTA 2 um, and mm. also um, some of the stuff they did that was terrible. Uh, Wild Metal Country was one of them. Surfing H3O, terrible mm. game. And these were both Rockstar games, but also some Take-Two games. So that's where I kind of got introduced initially uh, to Graham and Luke at Take-Two when they joined. And we were working on games like Mafia and Hidden and Dangerous and Viet Cong. Um, as well as the Rockstar stuff coming into line, really. And obviously GTA 3 was the was the turning point. To be honest with you, Take-Two was going to go under if GTA 3 hadn't been a, the success it was. And it was a horrible thing. Yeah. Um, a horrible thing in the way that I remember being stood with my guys in in the, in the work there, and we watched on televisions, obviously, um, the Twin Towers coming down. You know, 9-11, it's right there. Um, yeah. And getting a phone call from Sam Hauser directly because we were working on GTA 3 at the time. It was going to come out, you know, within a couple of months. It was an October launch. This was September 2001. And yeah. Sam rang up and went, Roydy, the world's coming in here. I'm under my desk. There's dust clouds coming down the street because the Rockstar office was on, it was on Broadway and it was down near Soho. Oh, shit. It was on, near Soho. So it wasn't that far from Ground Zero. And yeah. um, it's like, there's only really you guys and the North guys. We need to get GTA finished. Let's get it out. So basically, the, the New York office closed down, obviously, for, for a while. Everybody was displaced. Yeah. We, were, we were testing uh, the GTA uh, 3 stuff, working with North and Leslie Benzies and the guys up there. And we all managed to get GTA 3 out. You know, and it was like, great. We got it out. Obviously, it sold bucket loads, kind of safe take two. But the nice thing about it was there, yeah. it's like, we, you know, the Lincoln crew really put themselves on the map by being part of that situation to to get the game out. So from that point on, really, the Lincoln crew, the team, had a really good reputation inside take two uh, and with Rockstar. Yeah. And so from there, we kind of grew in Lincoln to support all of the, the uh, Take Two games, which you know Graham and Luke and those guys were doing, and also all the Rockstar stuff, so all the GTAs and things from that put on, and you know Midnight Club Smugglers Run, even even the early things like Oni worked on Oni, uh, which was done by Bun, which oh. was done by Bungie, and of course then Bungie got sold yeah. to Microsoft, which was, in my opinion, a massive mistake, but they did it, and then of course Halo came out of that, uh, which Sam hates, by the way, Sam. Sam Hauser really hated Halo because it sold yeah, really? it sold a lot it sold a lot and it was a, a real challenger for, for GTA sales especially on Xbox obviously on Xbox so yeah oh yeah so our first couple of years it was all very um, seat the pants fast growth having to learn quickly and because I couldn't get too many uh, experienced people in Lincoln you know for, for, even for QA we kind of recruited the right mm. people that love games, that wanted to work on this stuff, and we kind of built our own systems, and we made a little bit of... This is the operations gig, really. You know, being in the military, mm. when you fix aeroplanes, if you don't do that right, people die. Well, you like to hope people don't die in video games, so... Um, but you need to do your systems correctly. You need to understand what's going on. And so we, we, when you can apply that logic to the delivery of whether it's quality assurance or production, and we did a bit of both in Lincoln... Yeah. It just means that you understand how to incrementally improve, level up your systems, respond to what people need, and kind of, you know, really mm -hmm. set yourself in a nice, strong position. And that's important within Rockstar, simply because you kind of need to perform continuously. So, yeah, that's that was yeah. my first three or four years, if you like, in the games industry after transitioning from fixing fast fighter jets and whatever else. A story as old as time. How common? Uh, no, that's incredible. Uh, that's, 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 that's the only way I can respond to that is 
uh yeah wow um holy shit uh so when you say logic are you talking when you say logic and systems are you talking about kind of like systems of sharing information like kind of getting a process going for like how you handle QA and how you handle the data from the QA and stuff like that is that what you mean by logic in in this in these kind of contexts um yeah I mean it is it is but logic applies to everything that we do if something mm -hmm. you know if you want to make something complete we have to understand the logic of starting and finishing and then what's in the middle you know what input do you need how do you transform the input into the output mm. it's kind of a bit almost mechanical well, it is mechanical but it's almost a kind of robotic right um and whether that's yeah. a creative process whether the inputs are all creative say you're painting a picture right so the inputs you need a, you need some canvas you need some time you need some paint you need some talent ideally or maybe not if you're painting a picture you just paint what you paint um you take the time to apply that paint and do the picture and then the output is what you end up with at the end and that's very simple logic based on anything that we do whether it's video games yeah. or whether it's building a shed in your garden it's the same thing you need labor you need a shed you need a place to put it you need time it's all those things and the one thing i learned in the military is the time element followed by the manpower is is particularly powerful mm. and required because if those two things are not strong, then all you're left with is machinery and materials and tools. And it's just, and to me, it's the same in video games. The most critical part of a video game are the people. Without the people, you've just got rented buildings or a space in your home, some PCs and you know some electrical wires. So the people are the core yeah. thing. So most people, when they're thinking about logic or operations, often get the time wrong they always underestimate how long something will take they always back themselves to do it quicker yeah and we have to understand that and how many people are what skill sets are required to actually deliver that so a lot yeah. of the things i learned in the military which were just day to day were very applicable to games industry teams in the late 90s which was like the wild west Everybody kind of just doing their own things and sometimes it connected and sometimes it didn't. Yeah. And that's either fun or stressful or both. So <laughs> ultimately you kind of need, you know, bring a little bit of logic and you probably reduce stress, but you don't want to remove the fun. Yeah. You kind of need the vibe, right? You still need the team ethic and the teamwork and 10 people in one room that don't yeah. talk and don't know each other is not a team. It's 10 people in one room. So the mm. other thing the military is very good at is, you know, is understanding what a team really is, supporting the person next to you, understanding what they do, their knowledge, how you can overlap with that. That's the generalist thing. That's why mm. Devolver's a success today because it was really a good team and everybody did their stuff plus a bit of some somebody else's. So all of those kind of values and skill sets were smashed into me from... 17 and two months old up to being 30 <laughs> years old so 13 years uh, you normally do 12 but because i joined at 17 you did one for the queen because it, it doesn't count until you're 18 so that year i did between oh. 17 and 18 <laughs> where they paid me about 16 pounds a week um because I, because oh. i was 17 and young uh and you had to wear a badge on the camps that was a certain color and you weren't allowed to drink because you were 17. So if you went into any of the, the messes for, you know, other other bars and stuff, you had to wear your badge. You yeah. weren't allowed to drink. Your badge is yellow. You're underage. Oh my God. All right. But I'm allowed to fire a gun and go to war, right? Oh yeah. But you're not allowed to have a beer. <laughs> so, so uh, like that. Yeah. I feel like you should get paid more for your youth on that one. <laughs> yeah. That's it. For the bravery, you know. Yeah. For the bravery. I, I applied when I was 16 years old. I came out of school. Um, because because my home life wasn't great, my school didn't end up being great either. So, you know, I just grew mm. up in a, a bad place in a big city in the UK, and it just wasn't great. So at 16 years old, I went to the careers office and said, hi, can I join the military? And they went, which do you want to do, Army, Navy or Air Force? I went, I don't know, just one of them. 
And they went, okay, do these <laughs> tests. So I did these tests. Turned out I wasn't such a dumbass. I was okay. And um, and they went, okay, so we suggested the RAF because she said you don't do like doing a lot of running. I went, no, I don't do do a lot of running. Right, so you don't want to do the army. Do you get seasick? Oh, yeah. We don't do the Navy then. So let, <laughs> this is how basic the conversation with a 16-year-old kid is about the military, right? But you like to shoot guns, yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah I've shot loads of guns. No, of course I don't. I don't know. I live on a council estate in Bradford. But which there are guns there, and that's one of the reasons I was getting away. But I didn't have any of those. Um, and I said, okay, so RAF, what trade would you like to be? I'm like, I have no idea. Um how about driving vehicles? And they went, no, no, no. MT driver, you, you, your aptitudes are higher than that. How about an engine? I said, what pays the most? He goes, aircraft engineering, they're the top <laughs> trades. I went, great, can I be one of those then? And they went, yes, which one? And I went, well, I like fixing my push bike, my bicycle. Right, okay, so that's airframes then. So wheels, tyres, structure, everything but the engines and the electrics. I went, that sounds great. I'll do that then. And they went, now you need to do another aptitude test to do with engineering. And we're just going to ask you some questions about that. I said, ah, that might be a problem. And he looked at me a little strange. And I went, <laughs> well, because I used to knock off school quite a lot, you know, truant school quite a lot. I didn't get there a lot. Uh, I didn't go all the time. Basically, when it came to selecting your kind of specialist classes outside of the usual, you know, English, maths, sciences, um, mm. technical drawing and metal work which are the ones that would be great for this job. I didn't I didn't get those. I actually did cooking mm. and typing. <laughs> so I can make an amazing <laughs> set of fairy cakes, if that helps, and at the same time cook a birthday cake, or I can type 45 words a minute. <laughs> and he went, right. He said, yeah, that's not ideal. But we took the aptitude test and I passed. I just passed on the engineering stuff. What was strange was when I joined the military and they teach you to be a soldier first, you spend your first six, eight, ten weeks learning how to be a soldier and shoot guns and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Then you send you for trade training. That was six months to learn about aircraft, train you know different aircraft types, all the engineering aspects of it, uh, you know, kind of physics around flying and all that kind of stuff. It's quite complex. And of course, on the first day we sat mm. there and they're talking about these particular tools and things in in the metalwork class, and I had no idea what they were talking about. So I kind of had to learn very quickly and do what I did and not blag it, but just, just really steep learning curve. And, you know, yeah. as a 16, 17 year old, that was all a bit challenging, but we got through it, got posted to my first um, kind of RAF station, which was uh, Finningley in Doncaster in Yorkshire. Um, and I spent the next five years there working on a, kind of a cool little twin-engined aircraft that was for training pilots to fly really big military aircraft. So, it was, yeah, it's kind of cool. Oh, nice. So you just, you had one aircraft that you were taking care of during that time? Um, one type of aircraft. So you, you get posted, yeah, so you get posted to a squadron. Um, this squadron was called uh, Six Flying Training School, and they had 12 Jetstream twin-engine prop aircraft. Almost like a small passenger aircraft, if you like. Um, okay. But uh, but it was kind of cool because we used to do some detachments. We used to fly to Berlin, actually, and you spend two or three days there. And this was before the wall came down. In fact, we, I was out there only about three or four weeks before the wall came down in, in 89. But we were in Berlin, and it was, as a young guy, you know, I mean, I'd be, by that time, well, we used to do those, those trips to Gatow in Berlin, probably from about 87, so I'd be 19, 20, 21, 22 when the wall came down. Um, and we used to go out there with the pilots to be six of us. And obviously, Checkpoint Charlie was a real thing then. You know, the wall was a real thing. But we used to go to this mm -hmm. terribly uh, dingy uh, strip club place as part of the gig. Uh, so as a young lad, that was that was very eye-opening and I, I don't divulge any further. <laughs> but that was the kind of trip that we did. It was all about beer. But there was um, a great bar called the, well, it's called the Irish Bar because it was an Irish bar and it was in the Europa Centre in the centre of Berlin. Europa Centre is massive, like a massive shopping centre. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Um, like I say, we were there two or three weeks before the wall came down. We didn't know it was going to come down, but you went in there, and this particular night we were there, it was full of very strange people, people that didn't weren't normally there. There was a weird buzz, a weird vibe around the place. And, um, yeah, it transpired that... Um, we, you know, we flew back a couple of days later and then uh, I'm going to say two weeks. I can't remember exactly how long. But after that, that was all on the news. The wall came down. So that was a transition point where for about a month before it happened, there was people able to come across the wall, you know, from the east. And when we used to fly in to Gato yeah. Airport, depending which way the wind was, so you came in at a different end of the runway, you flew over the east and then landed in the west, mm-hmm. you know, landed in West Berlin, which was much more cosm- cosmopolitan. Yeah. But as you flew over, because it was quite low, you could see all the tower blocks and the trabants and the. It just looked so different either side of the wall, and that was a chance to kind of see it with your own eyes as you flew in, you know, on a plane. So, I was very lucky that during, the, you know, when you're in the military, you do get to kind of see a bit of the world, get about a bit, see some unusual places. Yeah. And you're often around areas of possible trouble. Because they'll deploy you yeah. somewhere that's maybe about to kick off, and what it creates is this really kind of exciting but tense kind of atmosphere, <laughs> you know. And and let me let me be clear, right? I have many many friends that did uh, time in the army, and they always take the Mickey out of me for being in the RAF because they're going, I was in a, I was in a. A hole in the desert in the first Gulf War. Well, you were all in five-star hotels in Bahrain, and I'm like, that's right. And they, <laughs> and these guys, it's, it's really funny. They'll crack jokes about how much you get paid. It's like, oh yeah, if there's an incoming air strike, <laughs> hide behind a techie's wallet, and you, you'll definitely won't die. And I'm like, that's kind of a joke on you, right? I'm just. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I'd be behind my fat wallet full of money. Thanks, mate. So, um, <laughs> sick bird. Exactly, yeah. So it was, I suppose the kind of point I'm making is it was just a very, <clears throat> for a young lad that just turned 17, mm-hmm. by the time I came out at 30 years old, I had a significant amount of life experience and a lot of experience with logic operations teamwork mm. delivering you know you can't not fix an airplane when it yeah. needs to be fixed you have to you know work out how to do it take risks understand yeah. risk so moving into video games i could apply those things in a very gentle way but they became very efficient and effective yeah. and the teams were good and you know you we really looked after the teams yeah. the rockstar lincoln so that kind of set me on this track if you like of operations and efficiency and effectiveness and helping things work better and that kind of thing nice wow that's 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 wonderful so you mentioned like going into places of like you know potential danger and and stuff like that so how do you make the transition to devolver digital i was gonna say it's tough right (laughs) because i mean you know being under fire um like all that, you know, all that time ago, it's like coming back into a war zone. I mean, you know, ultimately, whenever I go into a meeting and we start talking about these games and all the things that have to happen, and of course you've got Nigel kind of going, it's this and it's now and we need to do that. And it's in his very gentle way of, hey guys, it's this and it's now and we need to do that. And I'm kind of going, oh my God, I need 12 people to do that. We need three months to do that. You know, and obviously if... Uh, and you know, Mark and Mark Hickey trying to get his mobile deals and things like that. Yeah, I've got to say, I get the same kind of trauma, but um, it's uh, oh, no. <laughs> it's all right. It's fine. I can cry myself to sleep at night. There's no problem. You know, we're all okay. I've got my mates to lean, lean on. It's all good. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, it's honestly a pleasure. I loved him all, though. It's, I was so pleased when, you know, I got the call, kind of Luke and Graham asked me to yeah. take, take part, kind of. So were you still at? Rockstar at the time? Had you left Rockstar? No, I had a massive no, I had a massive fallout with Sam Hauser in 2011, and I told Rockstar to kind of kiss my ass. And uh, okay, uh, I moved to Activision for we built a studio for Activision to do mobile games from okay 2012 to about 2014, and then mm-hmm. Activision, as a big publisher, decided mobile was a distraction, and Destiny needed some more money to finish it. So. Um, we all kind of got made redundant. They did offer me a job actually um, out in 
it was to go work with Luke when he was at Activision out in uh, where Marcus mm. is now at um, out in kind of Santa Monica Way, oh, LA, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh yeah, uh, Infinity Ward. Um, but for some personal reasons, and the fact that currently Activision had maybe make fifty of my friends that I'd recruited into the studio redundant. Um, Mm. Some got some got re- got moved around uh, in side Activision and picked up jobs at like Vicarious Visions and a couple of people went to um, the Warcraft team. Well, the Warcraft team. Um, oh yeah. I kind of just put two fingers up to it all and said, "No, nah, I'm not doing that anymore." So I set up my own little consultancy business in in kind of late 2014, and I did that for until and well. I, st- I kind of joined Devolver early 2020, really. So, sort of five, six years. But I, you know, moved to Scotland. Yeah. I was helping small dev teams understand how to recruit and be better at their operations. Understand how to get the games done. Understand how to talk to bigger mm-hmm. publishers. So, so consultancy, really. So, 12 years at Rockstar, three years at Activision, six years consultancy, and then joined Devolver in yeah early 2020. And I've been here ever since. And in terms of the values, the people, the kind of way that we make games, I think it's amazing. I mean, you know, you can look at the industry uh, and for many, many companies, the the aim and the target is money. And the vehicle mm-hmm. is the sweat and the backs of people via crunch and whatever other mm-hmm. crap happens. But that's not Devolver. Devolver is, the aim is to have some cool games with happy players with you know happy devs mm-hmm. and the vehicle is money mm-hmm. which is the way it should be and you know as a guy that's done more crunch than I care to mention in Rockstar um, that attitude that that desire to look after our indie partners and devs and teams and people that's massive for me yeah. and so yeah Devolver's great Damn, that that uh, that actually just put a big smile on my face when you were saying that. I was like, "Oh, that's such a lovely way to describe it." Yeah. Yeah. Do you, Do you have a favorite Devolver game? It doesn't have to be absolute favorite. Um, There's so many good ones, but do you have one that's that's kind of resonates with you? Interesting, actually. Yeah. Uh, I've played so many recently, and I like them all. The ones that keep me playing a long time, um, I actually really like. I really liked Weird West actually, but in the same way that I like, I like Cut the Lamb. I, I think I like. I kind of yeah. like in my, in my in my game playing life outside of work. I'm I'm, a, I'm the classic kind of shooter guy, but I do that because I just escape, mm. and it's you know I don't have to think too much. Um, but mm. I do like. I do like a, a good um, resource management game. That's the logic. That's the operations. I mean, one of the very first mm-hmm. games ever I played when I first built, I built a 386 PC and it had a whole one meg graphics card in it, Orchid Righteous graphics card. I think I paid about 10, 20 grand for it in like, I don't know. It wasn't 20 grand. It was about 300 quid. But it was back in the, I want to say 96 or something like that. 90, yeah. 97, something like that. Um, I used to play Settlers which was one of the first games, you know, that you, and obviously Civilization. So I always like those kind of games. Yeah. So I like anything with a little bit of with a little bit of resource management, city building style stuff. I like a bit of combat. Um, I like something with a good player journey, you know, where you grow and you learn. Um, mm. So yeah, and I think Weird West and Cutler nice. Lamb do do those things. Yeah. Yeah, very nice, very nice. So we're doing a lot of porting these days, um, and I know that you know we we refer to it as Lloydie's porting corner, um, because in the old version of the group calls, you would you would do that before production got, you know, one person from production gave the report. Um, but like, how many different? Because it's a lot. How many different porting companies groups do we work <laughs> with? For all of our games yeah it's significantly more than people realize uh, I mean I at any one time we have at least five or six port teams 
active with multiple titles. I mean, 22nd Century Toys are one of our main go-to teams, Tony and his crew. They've been supporting Devolver since like mm-hmm. 2015. I mean, on their, we dominate, yeah. dominates a kind of a strong word, but it sort of is true, about 85% of their of, of all their time, but they're an external partner. Oh, yeah. And they have anywhere between three and five projects in play, and those projects can be multiple skew. So a good example was McPixel, other than the PC version. Um, mm-hmm. 22nd century, we're doing like six other versions uh, all at once. Yes, yeah, over a period of about six months, you know, they were doing Gen 8, they were doing PS4, Xbox One, Xbox mm-hmm. X and S, PS5, Windows 10, Switch. So even though they might have three to six projects in, each of those projects is rarely mm-hmm. one skew. Sometimes just a Switch skew. And then yeah. we've got, you know, we've got other teams in play, like Do Games did Cult of the Lamb. Um, we had a different team for Inscription. We've got for um, mm. games like uh, Plucky Squire. That's that's a team that's actually currently still in Ukraine. But I speak to those guys most mm. weeks. They're in the center of Ukraine. They've got generators. They're managing the power. They've got food supply and they've got fuel supply. And they're a good team. And so they're working. And we've got backup just in case they... You know they have to they get displaced and they have to move out. So it's not even that we've got plenty of teams. Yeah. We've got teams in very different situations too, and all over the world. We have American yeah. teams. Probably at any one time, I'll have six to eight teams active. Another two or three that are getting involved in something down the line, and maybe another five mm-hmm. that I'm I'm looking to give work to. Plus we've got all our QA okay. partners. We've got you know Testronic, Keywords, Linebridge. DAQA. So external, mm. with well over 20 external partners that are not devs, as in not the primary wow. indie partners. Yeah. Yeah. So plenty. Uh, yeah. I'm, 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 I want to ask kind of more just about porting as well. So just like what is, so what is it that makes it challenging? Because obviously I was making jokes earlier that it's easy, but like, Beyond just you know restricting the the resolution and the graphics because Switch doesn't have the same power as a PlayStation Five versus a PC, like what what is it what 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 goes into that process just generally? Okay, um, so without being too complex about it, when you think about a PC SKU, so the PC version the original dev does, they pick an engine, mm-hmm. right? So we all know Unity mm. and Unreal, but actually a lot of Devolver games are in the Game Maker engine. And the Game Maker engine is a difficult engine to work with. It's kind of very piecemeal. Everything has to be built right from scratch. So when a developer builds in Game Maker, it's a very unique thing they've built. Um, yeah. So when you take that and you go, okay, we need to make that fit on a PlayStation, whether it's PS4 or PS5, there are three primary things that have to happen. One is that engine needs porting across to the PlayStation libraries so it works on that machine. And that's that in itself is a skill, right? Having Game Maker run efficiently at the right speeds and optimized on the PlayStation. The next thing is mm-hmm. Sony have their own set of compliance standards. So in the same way that, you know, you've got the controller, so you have to show pictures of the controller that are correct when you know when you're you've got them in menus in the game the logic of how the controller works, like X button usually selects something or moves you forward, you know, triggers are for shooting things. Yeah. You kind of, none of that exists unless the PC SKU built by the original dev has controller support, and sometimes it doesn't. So we now have to make a controller work with that game. Uh, or if it's Switch, we have to do touch controls when the Switch is undocked or using Joy-Cons, which are terrible, Right. Or when it's docked and you use a Nintendo um, gamepad, right? So all these things have to be built into it that are not in the PC version. Mm-hmm. Then we have to make it perform to a certain level, as in like minimum performance specs. So a good example for Xbox Series X, you have to run at 4K resolution and at least 60 frames a second. So if the game's not optimized well on PC, but a powerhouse PC will play it, 
that's not good enough for the Xbox. So again, even even though it's more powerful, there's certain criteria you have to meet. If the game's in Game Pass, mm-hmm. like Nigel's got a great Game Pass deal, we then have to put in things like cross saves with um, Xbox Series X Windows and 10. Windows 10. Yeah, exactly. So we have to do a Windows 10 yeah. version. So there's a lot of complexity about the components and requirements that a particular console yeah. has. And then that's compounded by having to do the submission process, which we don't really have to do with PC versions. You know, we send them to Steam, but it's just a mm-hmm. cursory look, really, right? So it's that's the complexity, making it fit the platform and work on the platform, irrespective of engine, optimize it, make it mm-hmm. meet all the criteria and standards that, that that platform requires. And then as part of any deal, there might be additional things like cross-save, cross cross-play sometimes yeah. which is a nightmare that, that requires a really powerful port team to do to do cross-play it's it's okay. a very complex thing um and so it's you know uh, and then this you know submission process to get it through so and, and if you ask obviously if you ask uh, jr um nintendo and the lock check is difficult but they have to have two weeks before launch to set up all the store and do all that kind of stuff. So there's very specific things that create time issues uh, for delivering those mm-hmm. platforms. And at any one time, you need all of those ports to keep parity, so be the same as the PC version. Mm-hmm. So the port team really has to, okay. if they're doing multiple ports at the same time. So Cult of the Lamb was exactly that, and you'd hear that in the call from Andrew, we'd say how hard the port team were working. Massive monster making changes to the game on PC. They all have to be made, you know, and brought across to all of the console versions, of which there was five. All those five console versions have to go into various submissions at various times. They all have to have patches. So, do games were looking after all of that in a three to six month window, and it gets really intense at the very end, just prior to launch when you're looking for a simultaneous yeah. launch. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, the complexity of it. Nice. What, um, let's say I'm an independent developer, I'm working on a PC game with my team. Sure. At what stage, like, like, at what stage is it ideal to start, like if I decide I want to do a third party to do the porting, because we, oh, we should do it on Switch as well, or we should do it on, you know, all the consoles. Yeah. At what stage is it best to get someone else involved? Do you wait till you're almost done? Do you do it early on? That's a great question. And it kind of, there's no one easy answer. But mm-hmm. one of the things we've brought into, you know, I brought into Devolver was what we call a due diligence phase, like a look under the hood. So if mm-hmm. once it's agreed there's a pot, you know, is going to happen, even if the game's at alpha, but we know that this game is really a good match, say, for Switch, right? And mm-hmm. and the launch date is a year away. So the dev's still got a year to finish mm-hmm. up. So go from Alpha to B to then on to GM. Um, we'd find a team that was suited. And this is the important thing. We don't just put any team with any dev. Uh, you can put powerful teams with very small devs and they just overwhelm them. So you've got to match the people. Okay. You've got to match the people in the rapport first. So one of the things that we do is we'll introduce a port team to the dev team early, say around alpha, and say, hey, this is probably going to be the port team that will do the switch port with you later on. But it's great if they have a look under the hood now, look at the code. They can help you think about optimization, so that saves time and effort later on. And also, it connects them. So if, And often they'll build a bit of a rapport yeah. because the dev go, oh, my God, it was so helpful. They, you know, they, they helped us do these things and make these things run quicker or better or you know and at the same time that the port team have also helped themselves down the line that they're not going to have to do a whole lot of optimization with the dev when the actual port work starts port work will will often start around beta but you can start having a little bit of Mm co-development and or looking under the hood as early as alpha and that's that's good practice start bringing them together start thinking about that and even if the port team's not available uh, for, you know, for porting at the time that we want to do that little bit of due diligence or exploration or discovery, as yeah. it's called, there's always a couple of days for them to fit that in. And then the port team also know yeah. that if they do the discovery, chances are they're going to get that work in a year's time 
and that makes them feel good if they're an external third party. So it all kinds of ties yeah. into helping me forecast who, what, and when, building rapport in early with the dev team, building that trust, bringing that on, fixing a few things. So by the time you get to the port phase, which is really intense, the teams know each other, they're working yeah. together, the code is known, they can keep parity, they can keep moving, and you've got a much better chance of simship. Nice. Cool. So like a totally indie team might reach out to a porting company and what would they like do a consultation kind of thing with is that kind of or would they kind of phrase it the same way you phrased it as, as yeah if and now i've spaced on it yeah if they uh, so the reason i call it due diligence and a dev team a port team would mm. call it discovery the discovery is obvious mm. right they, they want to discover the state of the code and what would yeah. be required i call it due diligence which is a business term because i am when due diligence has two things inside it it, it looks for trust and it looks for credibility with a new team so if I'm kind of blood mm. in the nose of a new port team, I'll bring them in to do a discovery and I'll do due diligence on the port team in terms of trust, right? Credibility comes from their history and what mm -hmm. they've done. Trust comes from engagement yeah. and building rapport and building respect, right? So I'm doing due yeah. diligence and measuring the risk of that port team working well with the dev, being able to do the work, and we'll bring them in to have a look. And yeah. often the, the port team will do a little report at the end of two or three days of, of discovery. I see that report, yeah. we give it to the dev, they think it's great. What I've done is I've done my due diligence on that port team in terms of understanding risk, capability, rapport, and their ability to do that port. So we start to minimize all that risk down the line before we just get to the end and we go, we need a port team now and they need to start next week. And <laughs> Yeah. Any port team that can start next week and not a good port team because they should have a runway of work of at least three to six months. If you fall lucky, sometimes yeah. you fall lucky, you know, where the team have just finished the sure. project. That's really very rare. Good port teams are not available yeah. in a month's notice. So getting them in early, they can do a few days. We do the due diligence, the dev team gets to meet sure. them, and then down the line that port team knows that work is probably coming their way and they start to pencil that in six, eight, 12 months in advance. So operationally, we're getting ahead of the game, reducing the risk and those kind of value set things that are the soft skills of connection, of understanding each other and rapport and manage very, very early because mm -hmm. that will sink your game when you work remotely if the port team and the dev team stop talking. How do you manage that? They're not on the same place. Yeah, it just—it's just a massive fail. Yeah. So yeah, that's kind of the sort of nuance of fitting a team to a dev. That's fantastic. That's incredibly valuable. Good. Glad you like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep it up. Good Thanks. work, Lordy. Uh, I do my best. I try my yeah. best. I love Devolver, so I need to try my best. It's all good. <laughs> Well, that's great yeah no very very cool and that's i think something that I, i'm sure a lot of you know indie developers out there might find intimidating you know or vulnerable like the idea of someone else coming in and looking at your code and and uh, telling you what you need to change or what needs to change to to port it yeah so. that's the, that's the heavy-handed thing i'm talking about if you if a dev reaches out to a port team directly they might get yeah. overwhelmed in exactly the way that you say. You know, if that port team comes in and goes, yeah. oh my, you know, and they're looking for work, they're going to come in and go, oh my God, sure. there's so much you need to do to that before it'll fit on a switch. And they're just suddenly getting leveraged for work. That's not, that's yeah. not acceptable, which is why, that's why I do the due diligence on the teams. So they have to, you know, I, I kind of understand mm -hmm. them. We work on, are you good enough for this work? You know, have you got the right skill sets? And on calls prior to even before we introduce them to the dev, you know, you get a sense of that team. How are they talking? How are they connecting? You know, do they seem desperate? Is it all about the money for them or is it about the yeah. quality? Are they saying the right things? So that's that's yeah. kind of the first stage, if you like, the first gate. And if they get through that gate, then you gently introduce them to the dev. But in the same way, I wouldn't, you know, a massive AAA port team that are very expensive, I'm not going to introduce them to Daniel Mullins, mm -hmm. for example, or to, 
you know, massive monster, because that's just not going to work. So luckily, yeah. or by design in reality, not luck, we have a systems and an approach that makes sure that it's not intimidating. And actually, often done in a very, a kind of a way of, of hey, look, these guys want to help. You know, we kind of, they're going to come in and speak to you and see what's what. It's a very kind yeah. of, cooperative kind of vibe we don't um but we do have to talk some people around you know some people are just a little bit afraid of it we just have to you know be nice mm -hmm. be gentle you know prove this is the thing about the trust and credibility we have trust as devolver yeah. have trust and credibility with our devs and with most devs in some form well that's what we use to engage mm -hmm. gently with external teams or contractors or partners and we pick them very carefully for that reason so Otherwise, you'll spend more time trying to fix what went wrong than you do getting the job done and the work done and everybody's happy. So, yeah, we have to. Yeah. We definitely have to manage that because they are indie devs can be, you know, really shy and really kind of a little bit um, insular. So you got to be gentle around them. It is wrapping yeah. your arms around them, not hitting them with a hammer. It's definitely not that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Nice. Well, that's our uh, that's our time. Thanks so much for being here, Lloydie, and for sharing this with us. It's been great. You know, it's, it's kind of it's nice to um, it's nice it's, it's nice to talk about the work and, and you know and in terms of like I think I work a lot in isolation, um, but with Luke mm. and Andrew, not, not in isolation as in I don't touch many people. I do, but. The kind of style and the approach is probably a lot less known. So mm. everything I've just said in the last 30 minutes will definitely be likely unknown to a lot of people in Devolver in the way we do these things, in the way we do the potting, in the way we look yeah. after the devs. Otherwise, it's just a very practical thing, isn't it? Where you said it at the very beginning, we just take it from that platform and put it on that platform and maybe change the logo, right? Yeah. And, and, and as you can see yeah. by the whole conversation, that's exactly what we do. We just do that. Um, and that's fine. Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> Easy breezy. Yeah. Um, have you heard Jared do the thing? Have I heard Jared yeah. do the thing? Uh, I'm going to say no. So he needs to do it, right? All right. Yeah. He yeah. does. Do you like video games? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that I thing! thing. Uh, uh, did I hear that? Yeah, I that thought thing. I heard that's that thing, thing in Austin, right? That thing was in Austin, yeah? Yeah. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did that thing yeah. in Austin. If you're asking that question, of course I like video games. Yeah. Well, then I have good news for you. Oh. Uh, you can learn all about video games, those published by Devolver Digital, at a whole bunch of different places. Uh, we got a Twitter <laughs> Uh, at Devolver Digital, we got a Discord. There's a Fortcast channel in there that you could, uh, you know, chat with us about. There's uh, an Instagram. There's a TikTok. There's a uh, Facebook, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Is that it? Twitch. Oh, Twitch. Yeah, twitch.tv slash Devolver Digital. Sometimes some, some good shit's going on over there sometimes. And, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. that's uh, that's where we're at. That's the things. Wow. Those are good things. All of them are good things. <laughs> the best things. <laughs> there you go. The best. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for being here, Mark. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll be back. Oh, I think we're moving to a... We didn't We didn't say this. I forgot to mention this. We might be moving to like a, an, a fortnightly podcast. It seems like we there might be less fluff. Yeah, we're only uh, going to talk about Fortnite way. now. There'll be less fluff God that way. Damn it! They just ruined that word. <laughs> but uh, every other week. Uh, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another thrilling episode of the Devolver Digital Forecast. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Imagine if, in an instant, 
you lost everything you truly love. And the only clue as to how that happened is a mysterious firearm known as the Gumbrella. Gumbrella. Love is a fundamental motivating factor in everything that we do at Doinksoft. So when this man began his search for the truth, we knew we had to tell his story. Follow one man's unyielding quest across a bitter landscape as he attempts to unlock the secrets of this most unorthodox weapon. We realized very early on that the Gumbrella is not only a firearm that can utilize several different types of ammunition, but it's also a powerful traversal tool, allowing for dashes, double jumps, and even zip lining. All things that our unlikely hero will need as he investigates ruined and crumbling towns, underground facilities, and the terraced gardens of the social elite. We've been working on unraveling the mystery of the Gumbrella for X months slash years now, and we're still uncovering new mysteries, not only about the Gumbrella itself, but about the world that it comes from. Follow Doinksoft's incredible journey by visiting Steam and wishlisting Gumbrella today. Worried that you won't be able to run McPixel 3? Don't be. As you can see, McPixel 3 can play on just about anything, even this. And this. And this. Oh my, certainly not. Well, and this. McPixel 3. It might be the most compatible game in the entire world.